Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center, connecting people to God and each other. In our current series, The Five Solas, we are exploring the central truths that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and that we stand on the scriptures alone as our final authority. For more information, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co. All right, guys, you are dismissed to your classes. Why don't you open up with me this morning, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be rejoining our five solos series, looking at some of these core doctrines of what it is that we believe. While you're turning there, I want to just make a couple comments. Um, We had the sad privilege of sitting with um, Sarah Myers and Tim Miller and so many others in this church who are connected with Ezra Miller, who passed away, sitting sitting at the funeral uh, just down the road at Townline Mennonite and getting to hear the life story of a godly man whose life was well-lived and demonstrating in front of his family, this is what it looks like uh, when a man follows hard after Jesus. And one of my favorite things, and I, I just I thought this was so important, I thought, man, we should mention this. Not only uh, was his a life well-lived, but that the testimony coming out of that uh, at Townline Mennonite Church, it's a, it's a conservative Mennonite church, and Melesh is the pastor there, to hear him say that, this is the message that he wanted preached. That it is Christ crucified that saves us and we add nothing to that. That no good work that we ever do adds a single thing to our salvation. I thought, what a glorious proclamation of the truth. Especially in this community where we, we kind of have a tendency to view uh, some of the more religious institutions that many of us grew up with, with kind of a If I can say it, let's just be a little bit honest, a little bit of a condescending view that they're trying to work out their salvation. And you know what? I want to suggest that that is a tendency for all of us. That's one of the things I want to kind of touch on this morning. We all have a tendency to want to earn our own salvation, work out uh, our own ability to save ourselves, and church history just tells us that is not possible. Our lives tell us that is just not possible. I read the story of a guy who was a a CNN reporter who was trying to cover this big wildfire going on in the mountains, and uh, he calls ahead to this little airport, and he he gets clearance to get this little uh, private airplane. It's going to fly him through there. It's a little twin-engine jet or plane that's going to fly him through the valley. He wants to get these close-up shots, and he's kind of late getting there, so he runs in, jumps on the plane, and says, let's go. And the pilot takes off, and they're in there. He's like, all right, take me into the valley. I want to get nice and low. I want to get some good shots of the fires going on in there. And and the pilot says, why? And the guy's kind of indignant. I mean, he's in a hurry. You ever have one of those days where things just didn't go your way, and the more it didn't go your way, the more everyone around you annoyed you? All right, all right. We got one honest person in here. And he's like, because I'm a CNN Photographer, that's why, because I'm important, is basically what he was saying. And after he gives his little spiel about getting the right shots and being the first one there, the pilot kind of 
hesitantly looks back and says, so you're not my flight instructor? There, there is this tendency to view ourselves as way more important than we really are. There's also this tendency to view ourselves as way more able than we are. We need to be reminded, and I was thankful to get to sit in that service and be reminded that it is Christ and Christ alone that saves us. That's where we are in this series, that we are at Solus Christus, that we are saved in Christ alone. That is our one hope, it is our one promise of the future. That we can't promise it to ourselves, but God through His Word has declared it to be true. And Before we read from Philippians chapter 2, I want to just uh, remind us a little bit of church history. Because here's what happens. Given a little bit of time, one of those guys who thinks he's more important than everybody else will jump in the plane of the church and say, here's where we're going and here's how we're going to get there. And he's not necessarily the guy charting the right path. And so churches have tended to kind of get off stream mostly just because of one guy who would point them in the wrong direction. And in the early days of the church, when this would happen, it would cause a huge emergency. Because most of us in this room, even if you didn't grow up in a church, maybe you were one of those few who didn't grow up going to Sunday school in this area, but you knew the basics of who God is. If somebody said Jesus to you, it Maybe you went to the Christmas story. Maybe you went to the crucifixion story. Maybe you went to he's just a religious teacher, but you had some identification of this is who Jesus is. In, in the early centuries of the church, that was just not true. People did not have an understanding of that. They had an understanding of things like Greek mythology and all these other pagan religions. And so as this new Christian church was beginning to rise up, it was super easy for one guy with one wrong message to step in and completely start leading the church in a different direction. So they would, they would call kind of these emergency meetings that they called church councils. And I, I think we have a screen of this. Uh, there was one in 325 called the Council of Nicaea. And mo- most of us, I'm not going to take us through the creeds, but most of you would recognize uh, many of the words from the Nicene Creed. Here was, here was the heresy. Here was the lie that they were combating in that one, and that is that Jesus is not divine. That Jesus was just a really good man. We talked about this a little while ago. He was a really good man who kind of figured it out, and he's sort of transitioning up. And that's how he becomes God. That's, that's actually the Mormon view of who Jesus is. Well, a few years later, they had to do it again in 381, the Council of Constantinople. Uh, Another heresy comes up, another emergency comes up, so they bring the churches together and say, let's talk about this, we have to save the faith. And here was the heresy, that Jesus uh, has one divine nature, that Jesus isn't really human. So the first time they said Jesus isn't really God, and the second time they said Jesus isn't really human. And so... In Constantinople, they dealt with that. In 451, they came again at the Council of Chalcedon. And this time, the heresy was this, that Jesus was God, and he was human, but he wasn't really God, and he wasn't really human, because he was this mixture of the two. That the two somehow got poured into the same cup, and then they got all mixed together, and they're all separated, and now he's not like us, and he's not like God. And so they said, that is absolutely not the case. So this morning, we're going to be talking about something that sounds like a confusing term. I hope, um, 
through the fog of how I've been feeling the last couple days, uh, we, can, we can pull that out and bring some clarity to it. We're going to be talking about something called the hypostatic union, which if you want to know how to spell it, look on your bulletin. This is probably on there. Uh, here's our goal for this morning. To come to the place of saying Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that every other claim you hear for the rest of your Christian life about who Jesus is gets measured by that. By the fact that he is fully God and fully man, and we settle for nothing less. And let me just add this little caveat on the end of there. Even if right in that moment, we don't fully understand how that works. Because sometimes people have arguments. They hop in the plane and they say, here's where we're going, and they sound really convincing. And yet our foundational basing of everything that we believe on Jesus needs to stand on the two legs of he's fully God and he's fully man. And you may sound really good, but I'm never swaying off of those two positions. By the way, that's kind of where they ended up at the end of the Council of Chalcedon. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's read together Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you stand together with me? Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 3. Sort of the central passage that speaks to this. The incarnation, it says, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word stands over us as a guard. Lord, we were, we, we thank, we're thankful, God, that your word stands over us as a voice directing our steps, directing our thoughts. And God, we're thankful that your word is above us, Lord, that we are not even able at our most clear moments, at our most insightful moments to peer completely into the fullness of your word and see who you are. And yet it gives us a glimpse. And what we want to do this morning, God, is hold on to every ounce of revelation that you have given us of who you are. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see ourselves Help us to see this great salvation that is ours in Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite um, commentaries on what's going on in society and popular science has become the people at Answers in Genesis, uh, the people who put together the Creation Museum. Uh, They just have done some very insightful and scholarly looking into some relatively murky theological issues uh, when it comes to science and creation and how God has revealed himself. Uh, Here's what Troy Lacey from the Answers in Genesis crew had to say. He said, The hypostatic union refers to the perfect union of Christ's two natures, one fully human and one fully divine, 
What this doctrine teaches is that these two natures are united in one person, in the God-man. Jesus is not two persons, nor is he God part of the time and man other times. He is one person. The hypostatic union is the joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. This is what Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher of a couple centuries ago, called the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. That in Christ you have this coming together of these two excellencies, this perfect of divinity and this recapturing of perfection in humanity that Adam and Eve were actually created with and they traded for sin. And in Christ, those things get recaptured and put together like never before and like never again. There is no one like Jesus. So here's the question for this morning. Why are we talking about the hypostatic union? Why can't we just say something like, fully God and fully man? Well, one of the reasons is uh, it gets super easy. There's tons of people who say fully God and fully man, and then in their next sentence, they go on to say that that's not what they mean. You'll hear that all the time. And in the research uh, for the last couple weeks, been looking at this, and I've seen Pastor after pastor say, yes, we affirm that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And then the very next thing they say is, is just, no, we don't actually believe that. And they'll tell you all the re- And we'll get into a couple of those. Uh, I'll give you one here in just a second. The reason we're talking about hypostatic union is because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When it says his nature... The word there in Greek is hypostasis. So it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, and he is the hypostasis, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So within that, it had to do with it's this Greek word that has to do with the being of very nature. That he is not just like God. He's not just created in the image of God. That he is an uncreated being, and he is God. Now, as some of these debates at these different councils raged, and and you saw it seems like a short period of time unless you actually lived then, and then you probably didn't live from the first council to the second one, because you're talking about 150 years. Over that period of time, as they used this word, hypostasis, which is why we have hypostatic, uh, it kind of sort of changes in the way that they identify it, and they really say what we're talking about is personhood here. What is it that makes you a person? What is it that makes you, as a person, part of the human collective and yet separate and different from every other person on this planet? And within Christ, you have this joining of those. Dave Mathis says this, The word hypostasis came to denote not sameness in the Godhead, not God's one essence, but the distinctness of the three persons. And so it gets used like our English word person. Now here's our problem. Every, here's why we run into this time and time again, because we are arrogant. We think we are just the best thing the world has to offer. Now, just in case uh, that's too much of you, I just encourage you, go see the Jurassic Park movie, and you'll get to hear uh, the world's view, that this new version of humanism, which actually says uh, humans are awesome, and we are a blight on the planet, and the planet would be better if we just did away with humans. And at the end, you see this triumphant dinosaur standing on what the humans have made, roaring as the humans go away. 
That's the end of secular humanism. It isn't, in the end, the, this exaltation of man. It's that we find out, oh, man is just... Sorry, just in case I spoiled the end of the movie for y'all. <laughs> Apology. <laughs> it's not that man is so great, because without God, we know man is not great. We don't get there. Eventually, we get to the place that man is no different than any other animal. In fact, man is a bad animal. That's where most of our society is going. Now, here's, here's the problem. Uh, deep down inside our hearts, we don't really believe that. We're actually pretty self, uh, self-absorbed, and we have this tendency to define our world and even God by ourselves rather than doing it the other way around, saying we define ourselves by God and his word. Uh, the incarnation reminds us that it works exactly the opposite. Let me read you a quote that I read from a very godly man. I don't know where he got it because he didn't put his reference on there, so I'll just attribute it to Roger Kaufman. He says, uh, Christ emptied himself, not by subtraction, but by addition. Not by ceasing to be anything that he was, but by becoming something that heretofore he had not been, and that is a man. I think this actually was Roger's thing. He stuck on the end. One of the problems that you find uh, with a lot of the Word of Faith teachers is that you have this great exaltation of man over God, and then they, they put in things that, in fact, there were a couple of them that I read in the last couple of weeks where they'll say, Jesus was fully God and fully man, and then the next breath they tell you, but while he was on the earth, he stopped being God. We're going to talk about what, what some of that meant in there where it said that he emptied himself, that he emptied himself of being God, and it wasn't until after he was born again at his resurrection that he kind of resumed being God. That's heresy. Remember, we have two legs. Jesus is fully God and fully man all the time. It did not exist before the incarnation, and then he put on flesh. And from now until the rest of eternity, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So when you hear these things that kind of sound good, especially when when they start talking about he was a spirit-empowered man. There's a lot of people who use that phrase, spirit-empowered man. And what they're getting at is the fact that he laid aside all of his godness on the earth. It's dangerous, folks. That's the exact heresy they dealt with at some of those councils. So let's, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. Go ahead and flip over to it. Let's read this verse in a bit more context. Hebrews chapter 1. We read verse 3. Let's back up and read verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 4. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, through whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power, by the word of His power. Now, if we just stopped right there, if we did not read the rest, We could have Jesus as God. We could have Jesus as the one who comes to reveal God, but we do not yet have Jesus as Savior. Because it takes someone in humanity to be the substitutionary sacrifice for human sin. That we had to have someone like us to make that sacrifice. Thank God it doesn't end there. It says, after making purification for sin, that's crucifixion, 
death, resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is more excellent than theirs. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21 says this, For as by a man, for as by, yeah, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It took a man. We see, we see this pattern, this, this shadow that God gives us throughout the Old Testament where humans sin and they fall short, and so we take an animal. Is an animal a man? Now come on, think, think with me here. If we're talking in evolutionary terms, is an animal equal to a man? In evolutionary terms, they say yeah. Don't they? That's why people are willing to say people should suffer and die so that this animal can live. As opposed to Genesis where they get off the ark and God goes, by the way, all those awesome animals that you've seen your whole life, I didn't tell you this, but they're incredibly tasty. I have made them for your good. right? Humans, humans are created in the image of God. Every other animal is not. In evolutionary terms, they're going to say, no, humans are just one more in this line of all the animals. Okay, So we, we have to make a little bit of a distinction there. But if, if those sacrifices were going to be complete, it shouldn't have been an animal. It actually should have been a person. Here's the problem. It had to be a perfect person. Because the requirements, and you see this all through there, had to be this perfect, spotless lamb without blemish, without defect. And then the sins were vicariously put on the head of this animal and the animal was slaughtered and it took away their sin for a while. It was always temporary. Because it wasn't perfection. That's why you and I can never pay for our sins. It means no amount of good deeds that you can do in your whole life can ever earn it. No amount of not doing all the bad things can ever earn it. It's just not good enough. You can save and save and save your whole life, work as hard as you can, and you still will not be as rich as Donald Trump. I'm sorry. Now the American way says, that's not fair. Perfect. It's a good picture of eternity. You can work as hard as you want your whole life, and you cannot earn it. Only Jesus was able to do that. Uh, this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us of something that in Adam we're all guilty. One of the terms that gets used for that is that he is our federal head. That in him we have this federal guilt. I want us to think, because I actually think this is a really helpful way of thinking about this. Uh, because it's difficult for me to think that because Adam did something, I'm guilty of anything. My dad is sitting on the front row. It's hard for me to think because he might do something, I'd be guilty of anything. Because I'm, I'm this super independent American who says, nope, everybody's on their own. Everybody's got to pay for their own gig. Well, let me ask you a couple questions here. I think we have a slide with some of these pictures on. Who was it that defeated the British and established this nation that we live in? We did. Right? Uh, 
World War II had been raging on. Thousands and thousands and thousands had died. The Nazis had already surrendered, and we were sending in troops into all these Pacific islands, and it, was, it literally could have gone on for years and could still possibly be going on because it's real similar to what's going on in the Middle East right now, except for two events. We dropped two bombs on two cities, and it ended the war overnight. Who did that? We did. If you don't believe me, ask someone from Japan. If you're an American, you did that. Who landed on the moon and beat Russia? <laughs> we did, right? Those of you who were born in the 80s, you still remember the swag that came with it. We didn't even know the word swag yet, but there was something there, right? Like, yeah, eat that, Russians. <laughs> who does the rest of the world think is arrogant and loud and cowboyish and reckless and self-important and dangerous? Us. Oh, yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Jen. Uh, all you got to do is travel outside of the United States. Now, you may not intuitively know this, living in the United States, but you travel outside of that, and they're, they're like, oh, you're an American. They don't know me. They, they literally don't know anything about me. Now, we went to Bible college in Scotland for a year, and I got to prove that all those things were true. But uh, for all the foreign people who met us, uh, before that, it was all based on a federal thing, that we were identified and associated with who we came from. What's our heritage? What's our lineage? Who are the people who have shaped us as we have been growing up? And in Adam... We have inherited, just like in America, we've inherited some of the success and the pride and the victories and the guilt and the shame. This is why I think it's super unhealthy when people who live in this country and enjoy the privileges of this country that God has blessed so richly just start ripping into our nation and say how much they hate it. Oh, we, and have we done terrible things as a nation? Yeah. Look at slavery. Look what we did to the Indians. Look what we've done to almost every minority. Has that stuff changed? Yeah, right? We're getting there. So every time somebody does this, like, yes, we are guilty. We are also victorious in some of the things that have come as part of this nation. We are a blessed nation, which is my, my advice to those people is move out. <laughs> go find out how blessed our nation is, then come back. Come back and talk to us. All right, good. Yeah, that wasn't in my notes. I'm just not feeling good, so I just say whatever comes to my mind. <laughs> Here's the problem. Uh, we're not just guilty Americans. We're actually in Adam's race. See, in Adam, it's not just this association where you travel someplace and go, oh, you're an American. There's an actual inherited guilt that we have as part of that race. All the Old Testament points us to the fact that God has requirements and he's had a plan for the redemption of sin. Man, what we, we just love today, and, and all you got to do is open up Facebook and you see it all over the place. Uh, people creating their own version of redemption. Well, of course I messed up. Uh, of course, you know, I, I didn't get things perfect. I'm only... Human, right? We all kind of, we acknowledge our starting point, and then we want to define for ourselves what redemption looks like. Here's what it looks like. Don't ever tell me I'm wrong. 
don't ever disagree with me. Please, for the love of God, don't tell me how to fix it. Right? If you don't think I'm true, I'm telling you the truth on this, I want you to go home. Don't do it now because it'd be rude. Uh, Get on Facebook and just make one of those type of comments on one of your friends' pages and see what happens. Right? Because it will blow you up. They will blow you up. All their friends will blow you up because our version of redemption does not include salvation. It doesn't include God. It includes basically, let's just forget it and try and do something different. The Old Testament points us to the fact that God has a plan for this. He has a a predetermined way that salvation was going to happen. And only a man could satisfy the demand of the spotless perfection and the sacrifice that we needed for all mankind. Problem is that guy doesn't exist. We're looking for a hero that does not exist. Uh, Can I just make a little aside here, a little P.S. to you? This is why when you hear preachers who start denying the virgin birth, oh, I don't think think it matters that Jesus was born of a virgin. You ever heard anybody say that? It happens quite a bit. Uh, Some pretty prominent uh, Christian speakers will from time to time go, oh, I don't know that that matters too much. Here's what happens. If you don't have Jesus being born of a woman... And a virgin, he cannot be born, number one, human, or he can't be born without sin. Right? Because then he's all the way born. The woman part is not the important part. It's the fact that he came from a man, and then he would have inherited this sin nature unless God stepped in and did something completely different. Right? So if you lose that, then you actually lose this hypostatic union, this joining together of God and man different within Jesus Christ, and then you lose salvation, and then you lose all your hope for eternity. Yeah, it matters a whole bunch that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's super important. Now, I'm not going to bore you because we're coming near the end of this, uh, but I won't read to you the Chalcedonian Creed, but I want to just read to you a couple parts of it. So if some of the language is a little archaic, I want to just urge you to stay with me. It was written in 451, so they didn't have the internet like us. So you could be super cool. All right, here's, here's the basics. Okay, I want to give you the bullet points of what they said. He is perfect in Godhead and perfect in humanity. So he is perfectly God and he's perfectly human. They said to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. In other words, they're not mingled together. Like, like something that's all just been blended all together and you can't pull the two separation back out. Uh, they aren't also just sort of stuck on the side and he's one at one point and one at another point. That He is this union. He is this joining together of those. And here's sort of the longer thing, so just stick with us. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved the concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, that joined within Christ. I'm telling you what, stuff like this should just blow our mind. Because there's never been a time where God was joined with a man. You see it in Greek mythology all the time where they try and say something like this, and what you get is a hybrid freak. 
right? Read, read Greek mythology. You, you see these incredibly arrogant people with sort of huge human falling and then a little glimmer of the divine in them, and it always leads them to destruction. There's never been someone like Jesus, fully God and fully man, joined together. It should blow our minds, and it should cause praise to jump out of us. And I had this great experience uh, this morning during the worship time, uh, knowing that I dare not sing even one word if I wanted to be able to preach this morning. Uh, like, this is the most I've talked in about two days, and praise God for the strength that he gives. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm not going to sit up front and look like I'm setting a bad example, like, oh, well, I guess he didn't feel like it today. Right? Uh, so I was actually standing back there in the back, sitting in the sound booth for a while, standing back there, and I got to sort of observe our worship here. It's pretty cool. It's cool to see individuals responding to God, it's cool when some of the different phrases came up on the screen of, of the greatness of who God is and the greatness of what he has done. You could almost just see hearts swelling towards him. And I want to just, I want to, if I can lovingly challenge us, we can do even better. You know why? Because worship isn't about how great your voice is. Worship isn't about the music or the band that was up here. It wasn't about uh, the guys who were working back in the sound booth making all those things sort of possible. Here's what worship's all about. It's about your heart recognizing the truth of who God is, what He has purposed to do in your life. And when you see it in contrast to what you know your life is really like, it causes shouting to come out of you. I'm waiting for the day. I love I love it when we, we sort of drop, and by the way, we do this on purpose. We drop the music way down so that as our hearts sing and declare these great things about who God is, it's the voice of the congregation that rises above the music. By the way, that's the whole point. Otherwise, we just hire professional musicians and just have it sound awesome. That's not the point. The point is to cause you and your hearts to be moved by the truth of who God is. I like it when we, when we sort of subtract the band down and we get there. I'm waiting for the day that we have trouble hearing the band because of the loud declarations of this is our God. That's what it looks like for a heart to be moved by worship. That's actually why worship is so important and why ours has changed so much in the last couple of years. We want to be more and more faithful to that. The incarnation, let's talk about that for just a second, that God became flesh. Jesus always existed as God the Son. And now in the incarnation, he puts on human flesh as a second nature. You know, there, I was thinking this morning, there's something about being really, really feeling sick for a couple days. And my wife keeps asking me, what is it that, that you have? I'm like, I got no idea. This is weird. Like, it's a stomach thing, and... I don't remember eating Mexican or Indian food, but evidently I was throwing up fire the other night. <laughs> and it, like, I know you wanted to hear that. <laughs> You're all super excited about that. Uh, I have, like, this weird throat thing through all the years of abusing my voice. And so, like, I haven't hardly been able to talk the last couple days. Like, I've talked real little, uh, which, again, is why I'm praising God for being here. And I thought, you know, it was that that got joined with the divine. 
It was this fallible, broken human nature. Now, Jesus didn't inherit sin, but he took on humanity, which has the ability to get sick, has the ability to be tempted. Remember Jesus? Tempted in every way, such as us, and yet without sin. Like, without this fallen, broken thing that I am, like, without that being joined to the divine, he can't step in and go, I know exactly what you're going through. Hold on, I have overcome the world. Yet it was this joining of those two things. And we see it again and again. It kind of, it, it'll break out of Jesus' nature. We, we heard it as Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, the, the tomb of his friend, who he knows in just a couple minutes, he's going to resurrect. Dad was talking about this. And he stands there knowing what God is going to do in raising him from the dead, and yet he weeps. Because his humanity is touched by the loss. It's touched by that. If you know me very well, you know I'm not a super big rap or hip-hop fan. Unlike my brother, who he was dropped on his head a lot as a baby. <laughs> and I probably bear a lot of responsibility for that. There's a, uh, a Christian rapper. I know it sounds weird to even say those words, but uh, I think it, is it Shaylin? Is that the, how you say his name? How do you say his name? Shai. S-H-A-I. Pronounce as you will, right? Uh, he, has a, he has a song called The Hypostatic Union, right? So I, I guess there's some serious redeeming qualities. Let me read you a couple lines from this. He says, see the one. I'm not going to rap it, just in case you were hoping. You're like, you know what? This is Harold to a whole new level. <laughs> not just singing anymore, baby. No, no, I'm not doing that. See the one who never tires, knocked out sleeping. See the source of eternal joy, weeping. Who made thunder and rain, now has hunger pains. See the creator of water, become thirsty. Those are amazing thoughts. Amazing thoughts. So here's what they did at this Council of Chalcedon. They're looking into this, saying, okay, we know that what this guy's saying is wrong. This isn't some strange mixture. And there's always sort of branches of heresy that come up, just all kinds of different versions of it. And yet looking into it, they're like, there's never been anything like this ever. We have nothing to base this on, nothing to compare this with. And so they're not really able to look in and say, this is exactly what it is. They did say, here are four things to keep in mind as you think about it. Number one, attribute true and proper divinity to Christ. So you may be one in this room who goes, hypostatic union, I don't even understand what that means. Fantastic. You just put yourself on par with some of the deepest thinkers in the Council of Chalcedon. So here, here are four things to help you think about it. Number one, that true and proper divinity belong to Christ. True divinity. Not, not some shadow of divinity, not some sort of human creation of divinity or he worked up to it. He is fully God. Number two, attribute true and proper humanity to Christ. He's not some godish version of a man. He's not some apparition or ghost. He is human. Number three, do not so mingle the human and the divine that you end up with a being neither human nor divine. So you can't mix those two together 
and then get some like Greek mythology hybrid demigod. Number four, do not dissect Christ so that there are two persons in one being. That those attributes of humanity and divinity, they don't make two persons. It's not at one point that he's God and then he turns and here he's human. They are permanently joined together. I want to spend just the last about five minutes here looking at this this phrase that I think has actually caused us so much of the problem back in Philippians chapter 2. So if you're not there, flip back to it. He's told us, don't look to your own interests, but have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held on to, is sort of the, the idea of that Greek word. But, and here it is, he made himself... Nothing. It's the word kenosis in the Greek. Made himself nothing. That's the way the ESV translated it. The New American Standard says he emptied himself. The King James has a, a nice sort of phrase here that he made himself of no reputation. The word means to become empty or void. So what does that mean? Now, let me, let me just... Remember I told you one of our goals is to be at the place where we measure every claim about Christ based on fully God and fully man, and we're never going to compromise on those. Okay? So I want you to think through this with me. Uh, What does it mean for him to empty himself? Let me give you one bad idea that's actually super popular. Okay? Uh, One of them is that Jesus emptied himself of some or all of his divine attributes. That he laid aside his deity, as some might say, and the Today's English version, this is why the translation that you have is actually super important of the Scripture. Today's English version says, He gave up all that He had. That's their rendering of this verse. Why is that a bad one? Well, what happens is, remember this was written in the time of the Greeks where they they had this idea of God in this logos, this greater knowledge that comes and sort of is working within the earth. So Jesus lays aside that, the Logos comes as this empty shell of deity and puts on flesh and is something less than fully God. Remember, our our standard is fully God and fully man. So as soon as somebody says something that says, oh, he laid aside part of being God, we say, wait a second, hold on. right? That disqualifies him from being a savior. We don't want that Jesus. We're not looking for that guy. We know that can't, I'm going to give you one scripture on this. We know this can't be true. Just write it down. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness. Can you say all the fullness? All the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So in Christ, all the fullness of God. That meant he couldn't have ditched any of it. He didn't get rid of any of his divinity. That's why that's a bad teaching of that. Uh, so what's a more correct teaching? What's more helpful? I think it has to do, the laying aside has to do with function and not essence. With function rather than essence. The incarnate Son of God voluntarily laid aside the prerogatives and the privileges and advantages of deity, being God. And he chose instead to experience the limitations of human life. He chose, are you with me? It's a choice to be hungry. He chose to be thirsty. He chose 
who from all eternity had been the God who never sleeps and never slumbers, to get so tired that he could not keep his eyes open. He chose that. But he did not give up any of what it was to be God. Again, I like the King James. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't come as one who was way above us. He entered the world on our level with the intention of saving it. I want to just, as we wrap this up, I want to think a little bit about how our world thinks about itself. I have a giant pet peeve with evolution. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, I hate the fact that we talk all the time about things we don't really believe. We talk about the survival of the fittest. Right? That's, that's how it's going to work. Survival of the fittest. And, and if a species can't survive and adapt, they, they just go on their way and that's no problem. And then we celebrate exactly the opposite. Let me give you a quote from Albert Einstein. He said, Only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. That doesn't make any sense. If it's survival of the fittest, it should say, only what I do for myself in making myself happy and live longer is a life worthwhile. Warren Wiersbe said this, self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. And when we see it, and even when the secular world sees it, they see self-sacrifice and we celebrate it. You know how I know? Christians and non-Christians alike can't watch those ridiculous videos of guys returning home from war to surprise their families at graduations and baseball games and at school without breaking down crying. Because there is something inside of us that says, I celebrate self-sacrifice. It's good. It's a deeper level than what we think. I think we have to guard against that even in the church. Even in the church, we're going to have some sort of spiritual evolution that wants to creep in. Now, we may have all the right things that we believe about the creation of the world, and yet deep down we think, you know, if I go to church long enough, I'm going to become a good enough person that God's going to eventually like me better. Or if I go to church long enough and I do all the right things, I'm going to become so spiritual that I can be like one of those great men of faith that used to be that I will evolve into this sort of Jesus-like being, like WWJD thing. I I will evolve into this Christ-like being and that eventually God's probably just, you know, going to suck me right up into heaven like Enoch. Now, we don't say that out loud, but we kind of have that in the back of our heads. And I want to give us just a word of warning and then a point in the right direction here. I talked to you a little bit about worship a second ago. Let me read you this quote. It's from a book called Gathering God's People. It says, A worship leader's task is a sobering one. They are putting words in the mouth of the church and teaching her to say and sing specific phrases to consider and grasp theological truths. Our services, then, should be scriptural from start to finish. In other words, the whole service should prepare believers to hear, accept, believe, love, submit to, and obey the Scripture. I hope that's what our church is all about. I hope that's what we point you to time and time again. And I, I have more in my notes than I'm going to share with you. I, I just want to say uh, that there are worship bands out there who make it on the radio and are super popular, and some of you have their CDs. 
and their theology of who God is and who you are is so horrible and it infects everything that they sing. Be careful. There are churches out there whose theology of who God is and how He works in human existence is so horrible and yet they are so popular that there is a chance that they can infect the way that you think about God. Never compromise fully God and fully man ever. Are you with me? One of those, and I'm not going to tell you his name because I think most of you probably don't know who he is. He has a church out in California. Uh, denies the hypostatic union. If you read, get on their, their church website, their statement of faith is, we believe Jesus was fully God and fully man. And then he says this, Jesus, even after the resurrection, was not fully God, but he was still a God-empowered man. Because, and here, here's his explanation, you can get on YouTube and watch it, except I'm not telling you who he is. He says, that's true because he says, all authority is given to me in heaven. Remember this, Great Commission? And no one can give God authority. That meant at that point, Jesus wasn't God because no one can give God authority. So he wasn't fully God yet. That didn't happen until after the resurrection. And everybody in his church went, oh, that's horrible. That's heresy. Are you with me? Denies fully God and fully man. Can I give you one more word of warning on worship? Pay attention. Pay attention to what you listen to. Pay attention to what you sing. Pay attention to what you sing along with on the radio. And start counting how many of the songs are all about me. Start to finish, it's all about me. It's about what I get, what I can do, what I, what I am. And they really lean pretty hard away from pointing you again and again and again towards Christ. They may mention Him just like in a chorus, but then they'll repeat the same thing over and over and over, and it's all about me. Be careful, church. Junk food's not bad as long as it's not your main diet. Are you with me? I'm not saying go throw away your CDs. I'm saying, yeah, great, listen to that, and then listen to some stuff that's actually awesome that points you to Jesus. Okay, uh, Let's wrap it up with this. Look back in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 9 through 11. We're going to be done. What was Jesus' point in this? What's the whole point of being joined together as fully God and fully man? Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't stop there. Right, we, we love to just stop right there. And they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ revealed Himself as Lord and Savior for one purpose. And here it is. Look at the end of verse 11. To the glory of God the Father. Everything Jesus did on this earth was to the glory of God the Father. Everything that happens in your life on this earth is to be to the glory of God the Father. That's why when God blesses you and you abound and you prosper, it is to the glory of God the Father. By the way, this is where word of faith theology gets into a huge problem because they can't cross to the other side and say, and that's why you face hardships and trouble and loss And it's all to the glory of God the Father. The world watches. This is what it looks like when people of faith put their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
and they stand. That's good news. That's good news. It's all to the glory of God. Paul warns us, he began warning us of selfish ambition in verse 3. I want to just say, and close your Bibles, this is the opposite. Worship team, come on up. Selfish ambition is the opposite of living a life to the glory of God. It's actually living a life to the glory of me. What makes me happy? What blesses me? What, what meets my needs? It won't stand for conviction, and it certainly won't stand for some revealing of sin in their life. Yet look at Jesus. He humbles himself for others, and God highly exalts him. The result is the exaltation to God's glory. This is the great goal of every Christian life. Let me close with this verse from Matthew 5, verse 16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The goal of our lives actually becomes the same goal of the incarnation. That God is glorified through us and in us. Stand up on your feet. We're going to close by declaring some of these truths of who God is, declaring our reliance on Him, our dependence on Him. I want to say, here's, here's our job. Christ does the saving. He does the sanctifying. He does the drawing. We just say yes to Him. We actually say yes because He gives us the ability to say yes. But then we make a choice and we say, and because you have done that, I will follow. Because you have done that, I will entrust my life to you and I will live to honor you and I will work to serve you. We talked about earlier uh, our opportunity to get involved with this I serve ministry of all the churches coming together for the glory of the gospel, for the glory of Christ, and serving our, our community. Uh, there's going to be buckets as you go out this morning. If you want to give towards that, we're not passing the buckets. We're not taking up an offering in here. We just want to give you a chance as you go out. Uh, put something in the bucket. Be so into that. Be a part of that. I would equally challenge you as we sing this song, our worship our response is, God, because these things are true, because these great things about who you are and what you've done in me are true, I surrender completely to you. I give myself to you. It's actually what worship looks like, so let's do that together.